Good morning. You know, seeing I spent some time in uh, a nursery this week, and I love seeing all the green and love seeing all the flowers and everything coming to life. And um, I cannot help but when I see that, especially things coming out of the ground, I am just reminded of the resurrection. Uh, my, my focus goes there. It's almost like creation is, is teaching us a lesson. Um, so this week I've been reading in the Gospels about the triumphal entry. Uh, about when Jesus came into uh, Jerusalem and spending that week. And I was uh, thinking back a couple of weeks ago, our children's ministry were studying this. Um, and you might recall if you were one of the adult classes, because they were studying the triumphal entry and, and what that would have been like. And they had the palm branches and they were singing Hosanna. And it was a, a great object lesson for them. And they blessed us as adults as well. And sometimes you might know this, you may grew up thinking this or in a church that practiced this where the Sunday before Easter was called Palm Sunday. You ever, you ever heard of that before? And I thought to myself this week as I was reading through some of this, I thought, why is that? And, and where did that come from? And I was able to learn, I'll just share a little bit, don't know all the answers, but was able to get some. Um, in about the 4th century when Constantine made uh, Christianity uh, the, the national religion of the Roman Empire, uh, it was easy then for the Christians to, to do that, to reenact that solemn re-entry and what all that meant. At that time, they used olive twigs, though. But about the 8th century um, is when you hear in history reading recordings about uh, Palm Sunday being mentioned there, uh, especially in northern Italy. It kind of took off from there. Uh, lots of other things that are kind of a part of that. Uh, sometimes it's called Palm Sunday. Sometimes it's called Branch Sunday. So I took a few moments to say, well, what does the Gospels really say about that entry? And, and what role did a palm branch play in that? And, um, and I put these verses on the screen. I want you to see these as well. Because what I noticed that palm branches are mentioned, but other branches are mentioned too. In fact, cloaks are also mentioned. Remember, cloaks, that's the outer garment of the day. So look at Matthew 21, verse 28. We see the first passage there. Matthew records a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then Mark 11, verse 8 says, Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And then in Luke 8, who normally gives us more detail than the others, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And then John, <clears throat> chapter 12, verse 13, he's the only one that mentioned palm branches specifically. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. So I found that interesting that Matthew and Mark indicate a large or many, it was about the cloaks. Uh, and then there was a few or others that did the branches. Luke, who usually gives the details, only mentions the cloaks, and only John is the one who identified them as branches. So I thought, why so much focus then today on palms? In fact, I was reading through that, I thought maybe we should update that a little bit, call it Cloak Sunday, because that was mentioned more often, even more than any kind of branches. And it really came to my mind because I was watching a documentary this week on Jesus. And, you know, they're kind of on the focus now, coming up with Easter next week. And there was one that was questioning the accuracy of the Gospels. In fact, it was this very week, the week before Jesus uh, died, when he came into Jerusalem, that they said the Gospels got that wrong. 
They said it was a week. They say, they argue, it was six months. And they used palm branches in their argument. Because what they would say is palm branches would not have been prevalent at that time. You didn't harvest palm branches in the spring at the time of the Passover. That was done in the fall. So the Gospel writers got that wrong. When they say he came in for a week, they claim he got it wrong because they said the palm branches were associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, in John's Gospel, my Bible had a footnote, yours may also, and it goes back to Leviticus chapter 23 where it talks there about the Feast of the Tabernacles. And it mentions there that they would be collecting those palm branches as well as palm fronds, leafy branches, and poplar. So all three different kinds of things as a part of that festival. But I do think the Gospels got it right. Naysayers, they can argue that way if they want to. But notice, Paul was just one of the three. But here's my takeaway from all of that, just very quickly. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, I don't think anybody would say it was about what you had in your hand. Whether it was a cloak that you laid down or a palm branch or whatever, it was about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And what was about to happen. That was the focus. Not about what you're waving. Not really about what you're saying. Although that's important too. But it was all about Him. In fact, during these last few days, Jesus took time to teach. In fact, I get the idea that His teaching in these last days were just most compelling. And I get that from a passage in Luke chapter 19. I put this on your screen, verse 47, where it says Jesus would go to the temple every day. It says every day He was teaching in the temple. Look what it says there. All the people hung on His words. Couldn't get enough of Him. They wanted to hear Him. So every day He goes to the temple and the people there are literally, as He said, hanging on His words. Now, I especially spent some time in John's Gospel, and I want to encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 12. We're going to look at John 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. All of these are his teachings of that last week. Now, the verses are going to be on the screen as well, but I kind of want you to look in your Bible and kind of see the whole picture, how all this lays out. Jesus has this moment to teach. What do you say? What I want you to notice as at this moment, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat things. He doesn't give empty platitudes or just cliches. You don't hear him, hear him saying, well, everything's going to be all right. In fact, what I want you to notice, and I put this on your screen on the top of your outline, John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Now, trouble is a heavy word. What it means there is sorrow or weeping. So life... It's not going to be easy breezy, Jesus says. It's going to be challenging. It's going to have some disappointments. And so Jesus, here in His last days, while these people are hanging on His every word, what does He say? You're going to have trouble. Kind of like, mark it down. Know this. Understand now. That's a hard promise to hear. But we need to hear it. We need to know it. The Lord Himself. Because if we expect following Him to be easy... For life to always be a cakewalk, for everything to turn out well, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to have unmet expectations, and they can be disappointing. Now, we understand that because that happens in every arena of life. A new restaurant opens, all your friends are talking about, oh, it's great, it's great, and you go, and it's kind of mediocre, service is slow, the bill's sky high, you're like, that's some unmet expectations. 
Or maybe you buy a new product and it doesn't last, it breaks, the quality is not good, it's not dependable, you've got unmet expectations. We understand that. But what about relationships? Unmet expectations can cause so much strain in a family. It can ruin a marriage. Unmet expectations. But spiritually, the consequences can be eternal. Unmet expectations can cause serious doubt. So Jesus here, in His last days, is telling us what to expect. And He's saying expect trouble. And I'm so glad He told us this because even today, I won't say all of us, I would say often it happens to almost any of us where we buy into a mindset and a moment of naivety that, you know, if I follow the Lord, if I do what's right, if I make good choices, if I go to church, if I give sacrificially, then the rewards are going to be, I'm going to have a good life. Things are going to go well for me. I'm going to be free of problems, free of challenges. Somehow that we're going to be spared from difficulty. But Jesus is teaching us right here in His last days, no. Wherever you hear that, you don't hear that from me. That was never His message. And in His last days, He's making sure you're going to have troubles. Difficulties are going to come. Disappointment. Just expect that. This is part of living in a fallen world. In fact, Jesus knows His trouble that's coming later that night. He's going to be arrested, falsely accused, put to death. He knows the ones that are hearing these words, it's only a matter of time that they too are going to be persecuted. Trouble's going to knock on their door. So He wants them to be prepared. He wants them to be ready. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Now, as I was thinking about that teaching especially, just as a way of introduction, I thought, you know, we need to hear that too. Because I think about all the trouble that is in our world even today. Even this week. All kinds of categories. But think about, in this world, we have little children who are the victims of chemical warfare. What do you think about that? How do you respond about that? How do you wrap your brain around that? In our nation, we've seen all kinds of problems. Racial division. Justice issues, tension, anger. Some would say like never before. In our own community, we have a trusted teacher who has abducted a child. In our own town. This is not in Oregon. This is not in New York. This is in our own community. How do we respond to that? What should we do? How do we think? When it comes to trouble, how do we deal with this? Jesus warns us about this. And I want us to think about and notice the teaching. In fact, I want to go back to Luke 19, verse 47 and 48 again. I shared that at the beginning, how they were hanging on His words. I want you to look at the context of where Luke writes this. The the full verses. Every day He was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill Him Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people were hung on His words. See, as they couldn't get enough, it doesn't mean everything was peaceful, everything was lovely. He had enemies right there in the middle of them looking for a way to take Him down. And He's teaching this kind of truth. 
So John's gospel records, if you've got your Bible open there, Jesus entering Jerusalem in chapter 12. And the next few chapters, John gives us even today, because you have a Bible, like a front row seat, as if you're right there in the room with him. As he's teaching the twelve, you were there, fly on the wall, taking it all in as well. And Jesus is standing there teaching, literally in the bullseye of trouble. It's come to a climax. It's about to come to an end for him on this life. And so what we have are his final words he spoke. And so he's trying to say, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to hang on to. When that trouble knocks on your door, when you wake up, when you get that call, when it happens to you, here's what you need to know. So very briefly, I want to remind you of just a few of these challenges of his teachings. The first one is this. In troubled times, number one, remember you're not alone, so don't be afraid. You're not alone, so don't be afraid. So much of how we respond to trouble in our world is because of how we feel about it. And oftentimes how we feel about it is fear. We may not even realize it, but that's how we respond. I'm afraid of what's going to happen, so I do this instead of that. And when fear takes hold, we do all kinds of things. It's hard for us not to be angry, for us not to be impulsive, for us to not to overreact. It's harder to be intentional when you're afraid. That fight or flight reflex kicks in. So Jesus wants His disciples to know that when trouble comes, and it's going to come... You don't have to operate out of a place of fear. And so he says like in verses, uh, chapter 14, verse 18, I will, never, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then look at verse 26. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. There's going to be some intense moments of trouble in your life. When you're going to forget some of the things that I've said, he's saying, you're going to think you're all alone. But remember, you're not alone. We think the battle is all the here and now. We need to be reminded it's more than just what we see in our eyes, that we're living for eternity. And the truth of Scripture can help us to know that. Truth like Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But trouble is going to come. And there will be times where you are afraid. And how do you respond in that? The truth of Scripture will remind you how to respond. Yes, you will have trouble, but Jesus is teaching, and He says this many times over these chapters, you can have peace. That's part of His presence. Look at John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I give you peace that the world doesn't give. And we understand that because the peace of the world is peaceful circumstances. That's when there's money in the bank. That's when the diagnosis is good. That's when everybody's getting along. That's when you've got a good job. That's when the sun is shining. That's the peace that's of circumstances. His peace is different. His peace is in spite of your circumstances. So do not let your hearts be troubled, he says in verse 27, and do not be afraid. I started in John 16, 33, where it says, in this world you have trouble. Look at the whole verse there as well. I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So hear what Jesus is saying. You will have trouble. 
But you don't have to be troubled. You will have trouble, but you do not have to be troubled. You can have peace even in the midst of the storm, even when the trouble comes. But when fear starts to win the day, it creates its own story, becomes its own voice, places all the the worst case scenarios. It keeps you up at night. You're not able to concentrate. It consumes you. Fear, you don't even realize you're afraid. You don't even know that's what's working in your life. And it's constantly lying to us. We become imprisoned by it. And Jesus says, you don't need to be afraid. Even though trouble is coming, you don't need to be afraid. Now, again, remember the setting of all this teaching. That very night, Jesus and His disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane when they come in to arrest Him. We know that's going to happen because we've read the story. We know the story. But His disciples are still caught off guard. They come to arrest Jesus. And you remember who was the first to respond, to react? Peter pulled the sword. Do you remember that? Whacked off Malchus's ear. Do you remember? I've always struggled. Think, how do you chop off somebody's ear? I mean, either you like get the whole head or the shoulder. But just, was he really good with the sword? Like, you know, or was he like really bad? Maybe Malchus ducked. Maybe Malchus had really big ears. You know, I, I don't know. But I look through all that, and, and here Peter is doing what we do know, and we relate to him just what we do. Not on my watch. I don't know what to do, but I'm going to do something. And remember how Jesus replies to him? No. Put your sword away. That's not what my people are going to do. Don't think that way. Don't respond that way. Was it just? No. Was it fair? No. But Jesus said, that is not the way. That's not the way we're going to deal with this. In fact, look at James 1, verse 19. James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. This is who we are to be. Not reactionary, not quick to jump, not quick to speak and do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing, but quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And as I thought about that, I thought that's impossible to do when you are overtaken by fear. You can't do that. Because when I'm afraid, I'm quick to jump. I'm quick to speak. I'm not thinking clearly. As followers of Jesus, we can come into these troubled times from a place of peace, not a troubled spirit. And notice John 13 and 14. Again, if you're looking at your Bible there, all of this teaching is taking place in the upper room. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. You remember that story? He celebrated the Passover with them one last time and instituted the Lord's Supper. So this is a very meaningful time. But in chapter 14, as it ends, you look there in your Bible and you see Jesus and these, these few, these twelve, they leave the upper room and they head toward the Garden of Gethsemane. So they're walking in the cool of the night. They're going through these vineyards, these mature vineyards that have been there for generations. And it's through this, Jesus continues to teach them and says, like John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. So I want you to picture this. They're walking through these vineyards. And I also want to make sure that when you realize the vineyard and the vine, He's making an object lesson here. You've got to stay connected to me. And so we get that. But I also want to make sure we understand this. A vine 
in this context. Don't think about like a little size like that's on the screen there. That's the branch. That's the twig. Don't think about the size of your finger. Think about a tree trunk size. In fact, one source I read shared this insight. In the upper room, they all drank together from the cup containing the fruit of the vine. Along the way, there were gardens and grapevines in the valley. This route would have led them past the sculpted vines of the Holder Gate, the main gate leading into the temple. Now, there was on this gate a large vine forged in gold on this temple door, on this temple gate. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus says the trunk of this vine has the circumference of a man. So when Jesus says, I am the vine, when you read his words in John 12, what you need to think about is a tree trunk, waist high, as big around as a man's waist. That's how big this vine is. And he's saying, you're the branches. You need to stay connected to that, uh, that vine. Look at verse 4. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He was talking to the twelve. Through inspiration, he's talking to us. Your only hope on the way you're going to make it. Trouble's going to come. You've got to stay connected. Verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Come what may, you stay connected. That word remain, I'm reading from the NIV. Some versions have abide there. I counted 11 times in 11 verses. Remain, 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 remain. That constant dependence there. But what I've noticed in life, and you've seen this too, is that when trouble comes, it has a way of revealing what kind of fruit we really have. Do you know what I'm talking about? When trouble comes, when you find yourself in a difficulty, and sometimes it's not good fruit. Sometimes when you find yourself in a mess, in a trouble, it's not good that comes out. It's really more of a duct tape. Connection. Now, duct tape is good. I love it. You love it. It has its purpose. But there's times where you don't use duct tape. You don't use duct tape when you're preparing a leaky faucet. You don't use duct tape when you're locking the door. You don't use duct tape to keep your wheels on your car. Why? Because you know it's not going to work. It might look good for a moment. You can take a picture. But it's only a matter of time. And that's what happens when storms come, when troubles come. What you see is your connection and the Lord is not there. So the true fruit that's exposed is panic, fear, anger, frustration, tension, disappointment, revenge, selfishness. That's what comes out. And contrast that to what you already know is the fruit of the Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Look at that list and think how much our world needs every one of those. How much you and I need every one of those. And when you are connected to the vine, this will describe you more 
and more. I'll even go so far as to say it reveals how connected you are as to how this fruit is growing in you. And really what he says, this is what we should, we should be known for. We don't grow without it. You might can fake it for a while, put on some duct tape kind of connection, but when troubles come, you're tested. What I've also noticed about this is you, know, you can't force these things. You can't make yourself joyful. You can pretend like you are, but not the kind of joy that is really joy. You can't make yourself be patient. In fact, when you try to force these things, you end up feeling more frustrated, more aggravated, because you can't force it. It doesn't work that way. It happens. It's a product of the connection. So in troubled times, you focus on that connection. I thought about this, and I thought, we live in a day and time where we want to stay connected. Not just have our power on, we want our cable bill. I mean, we want our cable connected all the time. Something goes down with cable, they get a call right away. They want it. Can't live without their TV. But more so than that, I'm thinking about our phones. How connected we are to our phones. You ever leave home without your phone and you just feel incomplete? You ever doubled back to get it? Kind of thing, I, I just, just how, how am I going to live without... I read a survey that said 80% of people who have a smartphone, the first thing they do in the morning is to connect. They connect. They open their phone to connect to whatever is of importance to them. They're getting on social media. They're getting on the news. They're checking their stocks. The first thing they want to do is to connect. And my question would be, what would happen if we spent as much time connecting to the vine as we do all of that? If you just matched it 50-50, what would that do for our connection to the Lord? So we get up, 80% of us with a smartphone, we don't even think about it. It's a knee-jerk reaction. We turn it on to our go-to. What if we did that for the Lord? A fasting is just a way of giving up something. We read about fast in the Bible. That's just, uh, uh, usually think of food. You know, this time of year, some people use the word Lent, and that's really what that is. It's a fast. What if you fasted from your connection? You turned off the TV. You turned off Fox News. You, you said, I'm not going to do Facebook for a day. Okay, an afternoon. Start small. Could you go a week and spend that time instead? In John 15, Jesus reminds them of something. He's told them many times. Do you remember these words? John 15, 12, and 13. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Love each other. You're connected to God. This is how you prove it. This is how you show it. This is how you live. In the same way that I have loved you. That's the model for our love. Verse 13, we love this verse. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. Again, remember the context of this teaching. He's about to do that very thing. Greater love has no man than this than he lay down his life for his friends. In troublesome times, we have the opportunity to love like never before. Love somebody when everybody else has given up. 
when everybody else is operating in fear, when everybody else is running away, you be like those first responders and you go into the fire. In John 13, verse 35, a couple of chapters prior, he says, By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's your hallmark. So you love each other. To me, when I think about the way Jesus loves, the word that came to my mind is compassion. Compassion meaning a deep awareness and a sympathy for another person's suffering. You're not, you don't just know it, you feel it. Your heart goes out to them. And a, be, a beautiful expression of this is in Luke chapter 7. A woman who's lost her son. A widow who's lost her son. And Jesus understands the social impact of that. The economic impact of that. This woman now has nothing. She has no one. And she's lost her child. When the Lord saw her, verse 13, His heart went out to her. And He said, don't cry. He felt it. He stopped. He became one with her. That's the kind of love we're talking about. He loved people with His heart. Not just with His eyes. And again, I thought about this because we live in a time where we are so connected. We're so aware of everything. In fact, we get an amber alert. You ever been irritated? Don't raise your hand. When you get an amber Oh, and what is that awful noise? Another child? Ugh. That's a person. But we're inundated with all kinds of news. All kinds of difficulties. Another police officer is shot. There's somebody else that's been shot by a police officer. Somebody else has cancer. Somebody else close to you has somebody close to them who's died. It's over and over and over again. And sometimes you think, it's just become, it's become immune to it. We're so connected with all of that. Do we really feel for them? So maybe one of the tests of that to see how you're really loving people, showing compassion on them is, is your prayer life. Are you so bothered by it that you cannot help but go to God about it? You're not just posting it on social media like everybody else, praying. Nothing wrong with that. But you are praying. That's your knee jerk. Whether anybody sees it or not, because that's where your heart is. You love them. You love the Lord. And you can't help but pull the two together. That's loving people the way He said to. One more. I'm running out of time. Remember, in times of trouble, that your hope is in heaven. We're not living for this life. After washing Jesus' disciples' feet, after sharing that supper with them, that moment of teaching, Jesus reminds His disciples that there will be trouble ahead. But notice His words. That's going to last forever. Look in chapter 14. We love these words. Chapter 14, verses 1-3. through Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with Me so that also may be, you also may be where I am. So we live with this constant perspective, this awareness that this world is not my home. That life is short. Every day is a gift. Our life is a breath. There are no guarantees. And that one day Jesus is coming back. And we look forward to that day because our hope 
is there. Our hope is not in our country. It is not in our political leaders. It is not in our Second Amendment rights. It is not in world peace. It is not in economic equality. It is not in social justice. Our hope is not in the church. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in heaven. If you put your hope in anything or anyone else, you're going to have a rough time. Because it's going to be like a duct tape. And at some point, the wheels are going to fall off. So we're reminded that our hope is in heaven. One last passage I'll share. The book of Revelation. When I was looking up palms and what does that mean and how is it used in Scripture, I found one that mentions that. It talks about the one day in heaven where we're all there, people of all kinds, on a level ground, and it describes it, and palm branches are mentioned. Look what it says. Luke, uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That they can't come soon enough. And if you don't feel that way, hang on because when trouble comes, you're going to feel that way. And your prayer will be, Lord, come quickly. You're ready to be there when everybody, and you're not going to be divided by skin color or socioeconomic status or where you came from or who's your parents or your ethnicity or your nationality. All of us will be equal holding our, our palm branches, wearing our white robes, saying salvation belongs to God. It'll be a moment like never before. A most beautiful scene. But until then, until then, we remember His words. John 16, 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Our song of invitation is to offer you that, that peace. It's not for us to give. It comes through Jesus. But if you're ready to confess Him, that you believe He's the Son of God, let Him wash you clean in baptism. We have the water ready. Or if we can pray for you, that wherever your trouble is, to help you connect to the vine, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?